Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery, from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts, or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Calling all trivia nerds, Brittany here, and I host the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast with my best friend, Meredith. Is your next car ride looking like a snooze fest? We've got The Cure, three rounds of awesome trivia every week. Harry Potter, Disney, science, sports, you name it. No more silent car troubles. The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. Connect, laugh, and learn with your kids, big and small. (laughs) New episodes every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Here's your ticket to the Fast and the Curious. Yeah, your ticket to the Past and the Curious, thanks to my son for the lead-in on that one. Uh, This is Mick Sullivan. Welcome to the Past and the Curious, episode 89, which is about time and time zones and daylight savings. I've always found both of those things to be unusual, potentially confusing, and uh, surely rich with a story, right? How'd they come to be? Well, that's what we're going to do this episode. We're going to look at the origins of time zones and the confusion that came about, uh, which led to a very momentous day called the day with two noons, which I think is an awesome thing to consider. But also at the time of releasing this episode, daylight saving is just around the corner and holy cow, that is something people have strong feelings about. (laughs) But whatever your feelings may be, this is about the origins. So thank you all for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. This is The Past and the Curious, and away we go. November 18th, 1883 was the day most Americans finally agreed on what time it was. This meant nearly everyone had to reset their clocks, and as a result, November 18, 1883, became known as The Day of Two Noons. Time used to be less precise than it is today, or than it was in the 1880s, for that matter. Wherever you might have been, you would set your clock by the sun. If you even had a clock, which was not a given, but let's just say you did. When the sun was directly straight up, no shadows anywhere overhead, it would be noon in your neck of the woods, and that's how you would set your clock. Or if you were in a big city and they wanted everyone nearby to be precise about their agreed-upon time, they would watch the sun and drop a giant ball attached to a pole on the roof of a very tall building. These are called time balls, and they are where the tradition of the New Year's Eve ball drop in New York City comes from. Everyone could see it way up high, even ships in the harbor, and they would then synchronize their watches to that city's time. Anyway, as you walked around town with your watch or glanced at the clock tower on a tall building, 
as you rode your horse down the road, it didn't really matter what the time was in any other place besides your own. People could only move as fast as a horse could carry them, which wasn't that fast by today's standards. And if you did take that horse to a town several miles away, and you compared your watch to the watch of a friend who lived there, you might find that they wouldn't match. That's not because your horse is a magical time traveler who could bend time. Though that would be super cool, and I would definitely name a horse like that Marty McFly. No, your times would be different because you both set them with the idea that when the sun is directly above you, it is noon. If you know anything about the sun, you know that, well, it is bright and hot and could give you an unpleasant sunburn if you're not careful. But if you know anything else about the sun, you know that it rises in the east and it sets in the west. This is because of the rotation of this round ball that we call Earth. You probably know that it takes 24 hours, and a few extra seconds we add up into the occasional leap year. Shout out to leap year 2024! Anyway, you know that it takes 24 hours to rotate around and start a new day. So, when the sun is directly overhead in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, it is still nearly an hour from being overhead in Omaha, Nebraska. So these two places, because of their differing locations on Earth, have a different idea about what time it is. And the lives of the people there reflect that. Until the late 1800s, most towns operated on their own time, which was based on when the sun was in the sky directly above, marking noon. But this meant everyone had a different time. In Indiana, for example, there were dozens of different times recognized by towns in that state alone. Now, they were all pretty close, but not exact. One town's 12 o'clock might be another town's 12.03 or 12.06. The farther away you get, the bigger the difference between the time of the two places, on account of the Earth's rotation and the Sun's presence. So, noon in Chicago was the same time as 11.39 in St. Paul, Minnesota. 1209 in Louisville, Kentucky, and 1224 in Cleveland, Ohio. This was the case all across the country, and for a long time it didn't matter much. The exact time in Chicago in 1840 had no importance to the daily lives of people in Cleveland. No, it didn't matter much. That is, until the railroad started connecting these towns, cities, and states. At that point, minutes started to be pretty crucial. Coordinating schedules is difficult. Any family with a house full of people can tell you that. Someone's got to get to school by this time. Someone's got to get to work by that time. And then there's swim lessons and art lessons or gymnastic practice, dinner, your evening dog walk. You get it. It's hard to do with multiple people. And everyone in your life agrees on what time it is at any given moment. But instead of people trying to make it to appointments or desks before the school bell rings, Imagine that they are all trains who have to get to other states to deliver packages, pick up passengers, and not crash into one another. If there are 20 different stops on a train's line, and all 20 of them have slightly different times from one another, do you see how that might be hard to keep track of and coordinate? Someone would have to do a lot of calculation and planning to figure out how to handle this. 
and passengers would have to constantly reset their watches. So trains would pull into the stations both at the right time for the passengers, but also for the station workers. And here's another crucial detail. Railroad lines would have to be shared, and if two trains leaving different cities with different plans were operating on different ideas of what time it was, there was a chance that they would run into one another. Train crashes are a bad thing. And they happened. Sure would be easier if everyone agreed on the time. Then we'd know what to expect, and it would be a lot easier to coordinate who goes where at what time. This was what the principal of Temple Grove Ladies Seminary in Saratoga Springs, New York, thought. When Charles F. Dowd, that was his name, when he first suggested time zones, it was to a class full of young women. It was an idea, a solution to a problem, and soon it became an obsession. Charles F. Dowd became Mr. Time Zone, and he worked hard to convince the railroad companies, of which there were many across the continent, that if everyone could just agree on time, life would be a lot easier and a lot safer. But he didn't want just one time. He realized that America was way too big for that. If that were the case, 6 a.m. sunrise in New York City would mean 6 a.m. was the middle of the night in California. Nobody wants that. Because he was an educator, Mr. Dowd wasn't afraid of a little math. I hope you're not afraid either, because here goes. He knew a circle was 360 degrees, and if you think of the Earth as a circle, you could divide it up into the same number of degrees. He also knew that a day was 24 hours long, and this helped him to arrive at his proposal. 360 degrees divided by 24 is 15, meaning it takes the sun one hour to travel 15 degrees of the Earth's circle. So his proposal was to create time zones that grouped America's landmass by 15 degrees. If that's confusing, don't worry. Basically, he said, let's divide America up into four zones from east to west. Everything in one zone would be on the same time. It was a good idea. Then a man with railroad ties named William Allen adapted the idea and made it both usable and what we know today. Guess what, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Boston, New York, Portland, Maine? You're part of the Eastern Time Zone, and it's the same time for all of you. And every town in the zone just west of that, from Chicago to New Orleans, would be exactly one hour behind. That's the Central Time Zone. The zone west of that, which includes Colorado, Utah, Arizona, that's called Mountain Time. And it's two hours behind the Eastern Zone. Lastly, Pacific Zone, which includes California and Washington State, is three hours behind. Isn't four time zones easier to keep track of than thousands of cities and towns using their own time based on the sun's arrival in their own city? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, sure, it might mean the sun rises at 6.30 in Boston and 7.19 in Cincinnati, but they are on the same time, and that difference sure beats missing trains and having wrecks. On October 11, 1883, Representatives from nearly every railroad met to discuss this monumental shift in time, and they agreed it was for the best. They acted quickly because just a few weeks later, on November 18th, the entire nation shifted their clocks. In the east, cities watched the clocks hit noon 
and then cast their eyes to the time ball in the town square, or tuned their ears to the church bells which were scheduled to ring with the new noon. And when the signal came, one or seven or maybe sixteen minutes later, depending on where they were, they adjusted their clocks to the new time. Noon again. Some people jokingly celebrated getting a few minutes younger on this day, the day with two noons, as it was known. Over the course of the day, the time shift worked its way west, and by dark, the country had converted to a standardized time. At least part of it. Some people refused. The mayor of Bangor, Maine, believed it was against the Constitution, and he threatened to arrest anyone if they rang the church bells to signal the new noon. In Tennessee, a stubborn preacher smashed his pocket watch on the pulpit in front of a congregation as he believed adjusting time this way was an affront to his God. They weren't alone. Many people still lived by their local time. In fact, around this time, many watchmakers sold special watches with two faces just for this purpose. One clock face for local time and one for railroad time. Though William Allen pushed the plan through, Charles Dowd was honored for his idea. Out of gratitude, the railways gave him free passes each year so he could travel anywhere he wanted for the rest of his life, which ended in 1904 when he was ironically hit by a train. Though the railways operated this way for decades, standard times and time zones were not officially mandated and recognized by the U.S. government until the Standard Time Act of March 19, 1918. There had been holdouts, the largest and most famous being the city of Detroit. But since 1918, everyone in America operates on a coordinated schedule and does not base their time on the sun above their heads. Hello, grown-ups. Do you need food? I need food. Do you like food? I like food. Yeah, we're all like that. Well, eating better is easy with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have 35 different options to choose from each week. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. The two-minute meals are easy, so fuel up fast with Factors restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. It's flexible for your schedule, too. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week, and you can reschedule whenever you need to. Sign up and save. The math checks out. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. My wife and I have really been enjoying them. Actually, I think today I'm going to have some salmon, salmon piccata. I'm looking forward to it. So head to factormeals.com slash curiouskids50 and use code curiouskids50 to get 50% off. That's code curiouskids50 at factormeals.com slash curiouskids50 to get 50% off. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. 
Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. All right, it's time for You Have 30 Seconds, and Hosea has someone who thankfully went on a vacation. Hi, my name's Hosea Salzberg, and I have 30 seconds for you. Alexander Fleming was born in 1881. He became a doctor for the war, and he saw bacteria was killing a bunch of people, so he decided to cure it, but he couldn't do it. So he went on vacation, but when he came back, fungi was growing all over the bacteria. Wherever the fungi touched, the bacteria disappeared, and that became penicillin, which saved a bunch of people's lives. Hosea, thank you so much. You did a great job. And also thanks to Alexander Fleming, right? Shout out to that guy. Uh, If you have a you have a you have a 30 seconds and you want to send it to us, send it to hello at thepastandthecurious.com. Hosea Salzberg, nice work. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. That's right, it's quiz time once again, and this quiz time is about, uh, time. Quiz time time. Alright, so, question number one. Levi Hutchins invented the first American alarm clock, a device which has brought an end to countless sweet dreams since its invention in 1787. But it would only sound an alarm at one time each day. What time would Levi's alarm clock ring? The Revolutionary War veteran was an early riser and he liked to start his day very early. So his first alarm clock would ring every day at 4 a.m. He didn't devise a way to change the alarm time, just it was a clock that would sound an alarm at the same time, 4 a.m. Probably made for aggravating weekend mornings, I would say. Okay, question number two. In what country is the oldest working mechanical clock? Just find the Salisbury Cathedral Clock in Salisbury, England, and you'll have found the oldest working mechanical clock in the world, so England. It dates to 1386, but was not working for several decades around the 1900s. It was restored, however, and is working once again. Alright, question number three. Before alarm clocks were common in Europe, people would pay for a service to wake them up. Because this was long before phones or digital alarms, the service was this. Someone would come to your door and knock on it. And if you lived on the second floor, they had a long wooden pole that they would use to knock on your windows and wake you up. Then they'd head on to wake up other subscribers. What was this job called? They were called knocker-ups or knocker-uppers. Some knocker-ups would use a pea shooter, which was a straw that they would use to blow pebbles at someone's window to wake them up. You can file this under jobs that are sadly no longer available. Oh, I wish I could have someone do that to my window or door. That would be really funny.
At the beginning of a new year, it's common for people to set goals. And one common goal that I'm aware of among many is the goal to be outside for a total of 1,000 hours in the year ahead. There's actually a whole movement. Both kids and adults set the goal. And the benefits are well documented. Being outside can be good for your health, help stress levels, can help with learning, instill cooperation with others, and it gets people using their imagination. And of course, exploring exposes you to new things that you may really enjoy. 1,000 hours may not seem like a lot spread out over a year, but it can be pretty challenging to hit that number. Because it ain't all warm yellow sunshine and fluffy white marshmallow clouds, if you're going to hit that number, you're probably going to have to spend plenty of time out in the rain and the cold. No biggie in most cases, there's still fun stuff to do in blustery, dreary, or chilly days. Heck, in cold communities like Scandinavia or Alaska, kids go outside for recess even if the temperature is below zero degrees. Now, I don't want anyone out there to turn into Utsi the Iceman or anything, but you can usually find a way to make the most of an hour outside, no matter the weather. Still, we can probably all agree, a bit of sunlight sure makes the time outside more pleasant. And if a little sunlight makes your time more pleasant, doesn't it stand to reason that a little more sunlight would make that time even more pleasant? Enter William Willett, a man in England who probably made it to his annual 1,000 hours outside with ease. For most of his adult life, William Willett had a strong belief about the sun. He loved it. He loved to be outside. He wished he could be outside more. But he knew there was no way to make more daylight. The rotation of the Earth and its orbit around the sun are the controlling factors in how much sun we get. Though it changes from winter to summer, you only get so much. But if you can't make more daylight, William believed at least you could use the daylight available in more efficient ways. The easiest way to do this was to shift the clock. Actually change the official time twice a year so that people could use the most daylight possible. He was not alone, nor was he the first person to consider saving daylight, as it's called. While visiting France in the 1700s, Benjamin Franklin found it odd that in the summer months, People stayed in bed even after the morning sun had been up for hours. He wrote a funny article about it, which wasn't exactly a call for daylight saving time. He mistakenly gets credit for inventing the idea, but really, he was suggesting, in a humorous way, that if people woke up and went to bed with the sun, they could save a lot of money on the cost of artificial lighting, which in the 1700s meant candles and oil lamps. He calculated the citizens of Paris alone could save a fortune if they woke up earlier with the sun and then went to bed when it was dark instead of staying up late into the night. And if they were resistant to rising with the sun, he recommended waking them up every morning with the sound of cannons firing by their windows. Which is one of the easiest ways to see that maybe Ben wasn't being 100% serious about the idea. In many times and places, people did live their lives around the rise and fall of the sun, which of course varies throughout the year. But humans decided to regiment time by dividing the day into mathematically consistent hours and minutes and seconds. This made time more universal and consistent regardless of where you are 
and what season it might be. When it comes to sunshine, 8 a.m. in July is not the same as 8 a.m. in January. Surely, you've noticed this. In the winter months, the sun is in the sky for less time during the day. This is because of the Earth's tilt. In whatever hemisphere that you are in, the Earth is leaning away from the sun, and as the Earth rotates on its 24-hour cycle, your part of the world gets less face time with the sun. In the summer months, your part of the world is leaning towards the sun. More face time with the flaming ball of gas out in space means more sunlight on your skin, more nourishment for the green plants growing around you, more time for playing in the park, and more time looking cool wearing sunglasses. But it's also easier to get sunburnt, so don't forget to wear sunscreen, y'all. Anyway, a century after Ben's booming idea to get people out of bed and into the sun with cannon fire, a New Zealand man named George Hudson made a more formal and more practical proposal for saving daylight. Without a doubt, George logged his 1,000 hours outside each year, but he logged his time chasing bugs. Oh, how he loved to chase bugs. His regular job at the post office was a shift job, meaning duties were done around the clock by people working different shifts at different times. His late shift left him with plenty of daylight to chase bugs. He was a citizen scientist, an entomologist actually, which is someone who studies bugs. But the daylight he had still wasn't enough for all the bug chasing that he wanted to do. He wanted more bug time. And he knew other people who had more regular daytime work schedules would probably want more daylight for bug time too. And if they didn't want it for bugs, maybe they'd want it for walking or biking or sports, or even sports with bug names, like cricket. George's proposal to seasonally shift clocks by two hours didn't go far, but William Willett did. William Willett dedicated much of his life to convincing England to adopt daylight saving time. And while George wanted to shift our clocks by two hours twice a year, each spring and fall, William wanted to shift a total of 80 minutes, but he wanted to do it over four weeks, just by 20 minutes a week. This was confusing and not where we eventually landed. Before we finish the story of how daylight saving time came to be, let's just clarify how it works in case you don't know. Here's the basic idea. As we've already said, people like sunshine. There's more of it in the summer months in May, June, July, and August. And when there's more sun in a day, that means there is more sun in the morning and in the evening. William and George suggested, hey, let's take some of that time you don't use in the morning because you're sleeping and add it on to the end of the day so you can play with friends, ride a bike, or yeah, catch bugs. You've probably noticed how summer days seem like they can go on forever, with the sun up until bedtime. If we didn't shift our clocks, or if you live in a part of the world that doesn't do daylight saving, the sun would seem to set an hour earlier. It's actually a different notion from Ben Franklin's idea, but in any case, this can make it a whole lot easier to get your thousand hours outside for sure. So how do you take an hour from the beginning of the day and put it at the end? Well, you can't really, but what you can do is convince everyone to set their clocks forward at the same time. And that's what we do at Daylight Saving. Not everywhere does it, but many places do. And because it's easier than 80 minutes, and less drastic than 2 hours, and way more chill than firing cannons, we've settled on an hour twice a year. 
So in the United States, on the second Sunday in March, most people will set their clocks forward at 2 a.m., meaning there won't actually be a 2 a.m. It'll just go from 1.58 to 1.59 to 3 a.m. We skip that hour entirely. Then on the first Sunday in November, we'll move that back an hour. On that night at 2 a.m., the clocks will go back to 1 a.m. So yeah, two 1 a.m.s. It's like a do-over, except you're probably asleep. So, you know, just means a little more dreaming and drooling, really. Since most Americans and his native Great Britain agreed to shift clocks to get more daylight, you might think that William Willett died proud and was able to take a victory lap as the man who gave the world more time in the sun. Would you be right? You'd be worse than right. You'd be wrong. Didn't work out like that for William. He fought for years, and even got great support from future Prime Minister Winston Churchill. But England's Parliament struck it down and refused. Willett died in 1915. Then, one year later, in 1916, they were like, well, maybe, maybe it was a good idea after all. Let's try it. Sorry you never got to see it happen, William. But it probably wasn't William's hard work that convinced them after all. It was World War I, and England's adversary, Germany, decided to shift their clocks. More sun during waking hours meant higher productivity from people supporting the war. And also less energy costs because people weren't using as much electricity for light and other resources for heating. Everyone went to bed a little earlier, which saved a fortune across the country. So England, not wanting to lose an inch to their German rivals, decided to do it too. Soon, much of Europe adopted the twice-a-year clock shift. America did it for a bit also, but the farmers were angry about it. There's a weird rumor that daylight saving was for farmers. However, historically, farmers have been against it and actually helped end it in 1918. In the 1940s, during World War II, America returned to shifting clocks for daylight saving for the same reason Germany first did it, saving resources, money, and increasing productivity of citizens. But since the 1970s, in one form or another, America has shifted clocks twice a year, springing forward and falling back, as the mnemonic goes. Not everywhere, though. Hawaii does not shift their time, nor does most of Arizona. However, Navajo Nation, native people whose land is in Arizona, does use daylight saving. Some people like it, some people don't like it. But the time change certainly affects things. People claim that there are fewer car accidents in the evenings because of there being more light, and also that energy use drops. But also, hospitals report that on the day after daylight saving, they see an increased number of emergency room visits for people having heart attacks. Furthermore, people's ability to focus at work the next morning is pretty bad across the country, leading to one of the least productive days of the year. Clearly, shifting time can create stress for people. Speaking of stress, parents of young kids will always complain about daylight saving. Babies and toddlers don't know or care what time it is, so a routine change by an hour can really throw a family for a loop. But even if you don't like it, you can make the most of it. Maybe it'll help you get your 1,000 hours outside, if you're counting. Or maybe it'll just give you some more time to catch bugs. Subscribe to my dad's podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye. 
Oh, that's my two-man hype crew. Thanks, guys. Thanks to them. But, but thanks to you for listening. Uh, this, this is a really great episode to put together. I learned a whole lot. Uh, so I hope you did, too. I'm sure you've been counting down the days to Kentucky Meat Shower anniversary. It happens every March 3rd, right? So for the last five years, maybe? I've done a live reading on YouTube Live. There's a link on my webpage right now on thepastandthecurious.com. And I'll be doing the reading at 5 p.m. I'm going to do it from Foxing Books, my friend's bookstore here in Louisville. And she will be, uh, she'll answer, or she'll ask me questions, rather, uh, throughout the, the event. And if there are people who are typing questions into the chat, I think she'll be able to relay that. Uh, so that's going to be really fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Also, later on this week, I'm going to have another episode. We're going to revisit the meat shower story because there has been some breaking news. And I actually did an interview with a guy. I've got um, snippets from the interview. And uh, we're going to take a look back at that. So get ready and check your feed. It's going to be a really fun episode. I should have it out by Friday the 1st. Okay, I've got some people to thank and a birthday to wish. So first off, Matt Levinson, thank you so much. It's so great to hear from you out in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Thank you for your support. I'm glad the show means something to you. And the same thing goes for Sam Martinez in San Diego. Hello to you. Thank you so much for your support. And also, I need to thank the hooks. There's a whole mess of hooks. It's like a dadgum tackle box, I tell you. Audrey, Abel, and Ivy Hook from Battle Creek, Michigan. Michigan's a great place, by the way. You're lucky to live there. Uh, I'm so glad that you all listen to the show and that you enjoy it. So shout out to you, Audrey, Abel, and Ivy Hook. And there's one last thing that I need to do. Wyatt Wolf, you share a birthday with the meat shower. Happy meat shower birthday to you. Happy meat shower birthday to you. Happy meat shower birthday, dear Wyatt Wolf. Happy meat shower birthday to you. Happy birthday, Wyatt. I think I mentioned, I think you tuned into the uh, the live reading of my book last year, right? I think so. I, I seem to remember that. Uh, anyway, happy birthday. And uh, I'm glad that you're still listening another year into your life. I hope you listen for every year of your life and you live till you're 110 years old. And I'm making episodes until then. Wouldn't that be great? Let's keep going, everybody. Thank you all so much. This is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious. And I... We'll talk to you very, very soon. Look for that new episode coming later this week. Hi, friends. Are you looking for a new podcast? Maybe something you can share with your littles? Something that has some storytelling in it? Well, then look no further. We have Storytime with Philip and Mommy, where my son and I sit and discuss all the great books that you might love while we read them. So, Little Golden Books, Berenstain Bears, and even the new classics like Bluey. We sit down, we read, we discuss, and we have so much fun doing it. Come and join us. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We've all been there. You're standing in a museum, staring at a painting, and all you can think is, I don't get it. To me, knowing the story behind an artwork is a huge part of knowing how to look at it. I'm Amanda, the host of the Art of History podcast, where we view history through the lens of some really great works of art. 
Each episode, we dive deep into the bigger picture behind some familiar and maybe not so familiar pieces. Check out Art of History now wherever you get your podcasts.